Welcome to Intelligent Machines and Medicine, conversations about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Adria Hoffman, and I invite you to join us as we explore the potential of AI in medicine and the big questions that guide our work. was delighted to welcome Dr. Ben Anderson and Dr. Diana Schreier to the podcast. They are doing innovative work at the intersection of pharmacy and machine learning that holds the potential to both improve patient care and to reduce clinicians' administrative burden. Ben Anderson is a medication management informaticist, and Diana Schreier is a senior manager in pharmacy reporting and analytics here at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Anderson earned his Master's of Public Health from the University of Pittsburgh and his Doctorate of Pharmacy from the University of Minnesota, Duluth. Dr. Schreier earned her Doctorate of Pharmacy and her MBA from Drake University. We had a wonderful conversation about the messiness of healthcare data and the importance of both developing and using AI in partnership with the humans who create data and systems. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to this space in AI and ML. So I came to this space a little bit non-traditionally. When I finished pharmacy school, I did a two-year pharmacy leadership residency. And during that time, also got a master's in public health. During that time frame, ended up doing a lot of projects in the informatics space from computerized provider order entry rollouts, a lot of work with some various types of automation, uh, and then taking my first position, did a lot more of the same. So I was just in this natural environment with a lot of incidental exposure uh, to the informatics world. Uh, From that, my first position as an ops manager wasn't a great fit. And I had an opportunity to stay with the same organization, which I really liked working with, but just slide over to the informatics team. Uh, From there, I got to embrace this and grow. Uh, came down to Mayo Clinic to help with the plumber project. Um, And then from there, I was fortunate enough to kind of get to work in one of my passion areas of clinical decision support. So since I came in 2015, I've been helping to design and consult and assist with clinical decision support efforts with a great team here at Mayo. And then our pharmacy department had some bolt forward initiatives for 2030. And that's where the AI and the machine learning aspects came in. So uh, I think both myself and Diana really jumped at that opportunity to be involved with that initiative. And from there, I've just been kind of doing some incremental learning uh, to try to keep myself up to speed as everything changes and moves uh, very rapidly in this area. So just trying to stay a little bit grounded and uh, still looking for more and more opportunities to stay involved with this. Hi, my name is Diana Schreier. Um, I have a more straightforward path, I guess, uh, but I graduated from pharmacy school, received my PharmD and MBA, and then went directly to uh, pharmacy residency afterwards. At that time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but through my experiences in that first year of residency, I realized that what I really like is data and analytics and just everything of the sort. Uh, so at a certain point, I realized Uh, that an informatics residency was a good next step. 
so I had then a year of training directly within informatics, which really set me up for a lot of success in, in this field. Um, and ever since then, I've actually been working as a staff member in pharmacy informatics at Mayo Clinic. So my career started working in clinical decision support and building tools around that. And more recently, I've transitioned over to the reporting and analytics team where we dive very deep into exactly this topic of reporting analytics and basically AI enablement. Similar to Ben, our, our first step into this project specifically was through one of Mayo Clinic's Bold Forward initiatives. I think that's been a really great strategy for a lot of teams to actually dive into things and turn AI from an idea into something that's actually in practice. I remember when I was a resident and I presented a pharmacy grand rounds presentation on AI. And at the time there wasn't really much for us to say like, this is, these are things that we are actually doing. There was a handful of stuff, but not, not really all that much. And that was only about I think five years ago now. So when you put it into the perspective, it's, it's kind of crazy to just see how far we've come. And I think we can really enjoy the fact that our institution has planned ahead and given us the opportunity to start working on those projects. Um, in advance and, and the latitude to kind of learn and grow from them so that I'm seeing now that we have a lot of robust projects moving forward um, with the patient in mind. So tell me a little bit more, if you can, where you've seen, you know, what kinds of advances you've seen in the last five years, what sorts of projects have come to light? I would say that there's a lot of things. Um, I think a lot of stuff is based on patient monitoring. So finding patients that are most likely to need a certain level of care, most likely um, to be admitted or in need of medication or a follow-up service. Uh, that's a lot of what we've seen. I think more recently, I found that a lot of teams are getting more deep into almost like individualized medicine, where if you think about the research that typically comes out, it will be for this huge population of patients this thing was the better treatment and we should always use this. But that sometimes negates the fact that like some patients aren't necessarily the best candidates for a treatment. So I've been seeing a lot more of almost trying to personalize treatment options instead of you know doing a large study and saying everyone should get this one thing, trying to narrow it down and use all of the data that exists within our EHRs now to make an informed decision, I think. That's probably the, the bigger thing that I've seen recently. And of course, there's, there's surely more to come from there. If you could describe the overarching purpose of using AI and ML to somebody who is new to this space, how would you describe that? To me, the goal of this is really not about shifting work per se, but helping decrease a cognitive burden and trying to make things easier for everybody to do their jobs. And ideally, yeah, if we were allowed to automate some of these tasks that we can define as routine and show that the system can do it more efficiently and safely given guidelines and free up our clinical staff's time to function at their highest level of their license and their practice, that's really what the goal of this is. I think the other thing that's that I that tends to be good to touch on is that all of this really can't exist in a vacuum on its own and just kind of do everything independently. 
Um, a lot of the framework kind of has to go in front of the pharmacist as well. So for instance, if an order doesn't get verified, well, it's kind of useless to just continue to send it to the pharmacist in the same way. So part of that strategy also has to be, we need to show our end users what the machine found because otherwise we're not, we're really not doing any better. We're just doing something different. It's an overarching strategy of kind of decision support instead of just like a machine doing something and and in that being being all which obviously makes it harder like you can develop a model and then it's a lot more work to just implement it than it is to to say that it worked and and be done it's very much an an assistive tool how it's designed to just quickly and efficiently go through a list and confirm everything that we constructed with our uh, clinical knowledge experts is available in the chart to be referenced. And if it's not in the ideal workflow, then it would go to the person. But if we find everything we expect, where's the value add of me looking at it any longer? So for our big project that we talked about, uh, we worked with a group of our clinical proponents and decided what could we do to kind of help alleviate and introduce some of this artificial intelligence into our daily work. And we went and we pulled a list of our top 20 medications by volume that were being ordered across our Mayo Clinic enterprise, narrowed that down to 10 medications, and then kind of meticulously went through and thought with this kind of brain trust, what would we expect a typical staff member to look at during the verification process of this order for any patient? And then we converted that and translated it into an electronic checklist and gave us an option to say, did it pass or did it fail? The barriers with this is doing this uh, kind of work on inpatients isn't something that's allowed by regulations. So we found a workflow that would let us approximate the screening of the order roughly where this would apply in real life had we been able to plug it in. From there, we went and analyzed the results after a few weeks of catching um, orders and gathering data, and were able to compare when the rule would have passed and the pharmacist verified it, um, and then when there was discordance, either between the, ru the rule and the pharmacist, one verifying it, the other saying it wouldn't have, and then finally the bucket where they both would have not verified that order. Very interesting. Uh, the ones where the pharmacist did make edits that our kind of rules-based system said would have passed, uh, we found a vast majority of them to be kind of almost semantical adjustments to either a timing on the med or an extra notation in the instructions, nothing that would have had a real clinical significance. From there, we took that learning and so I'm not just talking. I will hand it over to Diana to talk about the second phase of what we did or fill in any gaps I might have left there. What becomes important if you're implementing a model is, is what does the implementation look like in actual practice? Because almost anyone can build a model and like have no idea whether it actually worked or not. Like statistically, maybe it worked well, but in clinical practice, it perhaps performs quite poorly and would not be usable. So our second step of our initiative was to actually show the results to the end user. And there are, there are multiple motivations for this. So 
with our phase one, one of the limitations is we could see what the pharmacist did. We could see what our system would have done had it actually been implemented in the real practice on the identical orders. And we can say the pharmacist and system agreed this many times and they disagreed this many times. But what it was challenging to do is to work backwards and say, why did they disagree? In a lot of scenarios, it was like, I have no idea why the pharmacist didn't verify this order. I can't specifically find a reason or any documentation as to why. Looking at it retrospectively, I can't come up with a reason why that would have been using my pharmacist's clinical knowledge. So that becomes the challenge is if we're saying we should do the system, but we don't really have the information to say like why the decisions were different. It's really hard to tell anybody like you should change your rules. It's hard to tell the joint commission, CMS, anything that they should change the laws or the rules if we don't really know what happened. So the second phase of our initiative was to actually show the results to the end user, which also brings us to kind of the second motivation is if we were to actually implement this in the real practice and say we were filtering out all the medications that didn't have any problems and only showing the ones the pharmacist that had potential problems or need potential adjustment. It doesn't really make sense for us to do all of that computational work and then not tell the pharmacist what the problem is because then they have to go through and do the exact same thing again. Uh, so the secondary motivation is to just show the information to the pharmacist so it's actually usable. So what we did is for all of the medications that we had, we made basically a checklist that would indicate looking at the labs, this passed or didn't pass, looking at the dose that you that's selected on this medication, it either passed or didn't pass. Um, and then it you know becomes a checklist where they get a red X if something didn't pass, and then everything else is a green check mark. So it's very simple for the pharmacist to see, oh, I'm seeing this because the labs are out of range, and I should probably evaluate whether this is a non-problem or it's something that we should adjust the drug or discontinue the drug, et cetera. That's what we have done as our next phase. But in addition to that, we also had them if they continue to verify the order anyways, with the red X's showing, we actually had a question that said, why are you continuing to verify it? And that has honestly been probably the most valuable thing that we've done in that then we know when our model's just wrong, like we know when we have messed up and we need to fix that. But we also know when our model is actually like outperforming a clinician, like our model found a duplicate and the pharmacist is like, oh, I didn't realize that there was one. I'm going to go discontinue that. So it gives us a lot of insight that we would have never had had we just ran this model and done some statistics on it and never asked a clinical end user. Uh, so it has been pretty illustrative. It's given us a lot of new things to think about and a lot of new challenges to deal with. But also, you know, the ultimate goal is to be beneficial to the patient. And we don't want a subpar system. We basically want it perfect. That's the goal is implementing it. And it's super hard. And it's sometimes feels impossible to get it perfect, but we always find a way somehow. And, and it's been a great experience that way. You hit on a couple of really interesting points. The one is the potential to really reduce um, cognitive burden on pharmacists. And I wondered if you could share a little bit more about how AI does that. So in the framework of what we were looking at, uh, what this would do is make kind of the gold standard for medication orders right now is a prospective medication order review 
biopharmacist. And our goal state is to make an electronic prospective medication order review as an allowable standard as well. And so what that does is everything that would pass this very robust set of clinical check marks, labs, past diagnosis, all of these things that a pharmacist, even if we could get it reliably onto one screen while they're doing this work, they're bouncing around to visually look and process all of it. And this would take all of those orders away from them. We then went to visualize when it would fail, here's the piece that was missing. So we broke these big robust rules up into their respective clinically logical pieces to then show the end users what didn't pass, what didn't we find. And I think a lot of the value from that is even though we designed it with the mentality and needed to of a, a pass-fail, there's clinical gray area in some of these. So we need that person to evaluate, yes, this lab's over or under the threshold that we stated was normal, but it might be just barely. And so we want you aware of it, but at the same time, we might expect that clinical judgment to cause some discordance with what was designed. Do they need to think about the AI-powered tools differently than, say, other kinds of medical technologies? In, in many ways, yes and no. I think on the one hand, there will probably never ever be a completely perfect AI model because there are just so many nuances. Maybe somebody didn't fill in something in the chart and that would have been important information. And the clinician knows that because they talked to the patient, but the computer doesn't know that because the computer did not talk to the patient. So I don't think that there will ever be a scenario where things are 100% correct. But on the other hand, I would say that I think AI tools are and will be much more effective at getting the right answer. And the reason being is that in this world where we can use large amounts of data and really think about all of the factors that make up patient care, we can get a lot of information and we can be a lot more specific than saying, is this patient over this age and therefore they should get this thing. Because we're evaluating a lot more, the potential is, is very much there to do a better job, but I don't think it means that all of a sudden we have to be careless and stop using our clinical judgment. Um, because again, the, the computer is not so good at thinking about things in kind of a general sense. Like, if something's true or if a field is filled in, the computer's good at that. But kind of thinking about like an overarching, like this patient, it seems like, you know, they might have trouble going home or, you know, this or that, that is kind of, kind of the personal touch that healthcare provides. The computer is very much not good at that. So it's, it's working together with the AI system telling you this, but also thinking, well, for this patient, what the AI system might not know is this and that and then making a decision. So it's another tool in a toolkit. Yes, and I think it's a better tool than we've had before, but it's not a bulletproof tool that will never ever have the wrong answer. And I, I think a good way to, to look at where this is currently at is the area that's kind of moving faster is in radiology because it, it's imaging. It's pictures. That's something that has less of those caveats and variation to it. You can show the computer breaks in bones or blocks in arteries, and it can learn 
faster and better and more reliably offer you what it thinks it found than you can when you have all these other potentials for deviation. Um, and I think as Diana mentioned, the biggest gap is I don't think um, an electronic health record is ever 100% reliably complete. There's so many things. People get care at other places that needs to be interfaced and integrated with us. Although that access is becoming better and better, it still relies on a lot of people never making mistakes on an input if we were going to be able to fully rely. So I would also agree and echo that where we're, we're trying to get to is just quick and timely, precise suggestions about what's being seen to then be evaluated by that knowledge expert. You know, something that Diana said, and then then you, Ben, sort of picked up on also is this idea of something that's incomplete, right? Where there's not necessarily even human error that could be clinically problematic, but just anytime there's variation in something, that's where a computer or the machine and machine learning would perhaps struggle. Can you explain that a little bit more to someone who's new to this space? Yeah, I would say that this is something that we've grappled with since the beginning of time in informatics. One example would be diagnosis codes. Uh, so say somebody had a stroke and the diagnosis code gets entered in. Well, as part of that entry, there's a lot of information that would be relevant to ask about this stroke. Like, when did it happen? What kind of stroke was it? Are there any details that would be relevant to know why this stroke happened, etc.? So there's lots of information. But what's easy for a clinician to do is just type the diagnosis code, patient had a stroke, enter it in and, and pay no attention to all of those details. So when did the stroke happen and what kind of stroke and et cetera. And then as a consequence, if we say, we think it's relevant to, to know if the patient had a stroke in the last month for whatever we're making a decision upon. And the patient's admitted somebody entered stroke because they heard that they had a stroke last year but didn't change the date that that stroke occurred to the actual date the stroke occurred. Uh, it looks like now that this patient had a stroke in the last month when that's, that's not reality, but it's what was entered into the chart. And for the most part, this doesn't really impact decisions on care for, for humans looking at this information because they know, they talk to this patient, they know that the stroke happened a year ago. They can go read the note and they can confirm that that happened. But it's hard for me to tell a computer to go read the note because it's, it just doesn't do that yet. Um, we're working on it, but it just doesn't do that yet. So what we do is we pointed at this diagnosis code that was entered in yesterday, even though they had the stroke a year ago, and it, it will be wrong because the computer doesn't know any better. Uh, so that's where kind of the incomplete information comes in and things like that, where it you know, it's, we're only as good as what's in the EHR and only as good as what's discreetly in the EHR. Notes are generally the wealth of information in the EHR that we don't really have a great way yet to actually extract information from there and make it usable. We're definitely working on it. So it's not to say that this will never be the case, but it's, it's essentially like we need AI to do that. And then layer on our AI, which is, you know, of course becomes very complicated. You know, that's really the, the limitation is you have information, but the information may be incomplete or it may have caveats that, that we wouldn't expect or have the computer be able to do. And not only the, the data documentation side of it, but a lot of our information is also 
patient reliant. And near and dear to us, I think about a patient's medication list. Just because we have something entered there and it might be all discrete information, very pristine, easy to reference. But on the other side of that is, is the patient actually taking this at home? Is this really what's happening? Yes, the order and the information might be present, but there's layers to that that could have variation that I don't know without other leaps in uh, better interfaces, patients giving and sharing additional information as well with us that we can ever safely say some of these components are 100% accurate and reliable to automate these decisions past certain points. I think, you know, the other thing that's jumping out to me as I think through this is maybe the misnomer of intelligence and learning that we use so often when we describe machine learning and artificial intelligence. Because as you were talking and you were saying, well, when there's variation or incomplete data, the computer can't learn it, right? Well, maybe that's because the computer's not really learning anything, but it's really identifying patterns. I'm curious if there's other ways we might describe this a bit more accurately. I, I think probably what I would explain it as is insight. Because what happens, so if you have, for instance, a machine learning model and you apply it to a data set and in that data set, you find a certain outcome and that's relevant at the time that you train this model. What happens is a new research paper will come out and the new thing, the, the new right thing to do will be different next week than it is this week. But your model basically is trained on the old data. So it thinks that the right thing to do because you're training it on retrospective data that said the right thing to do for these patients and the thing that you have done for these patients in the past was this. And now when the recommendations change, well, your model does, your model didn't go to the conference. Your model doesn't know that the recommendations have changed. It has, it still has insight. Like it can identify the patients that have information about them that would be relevant for the model, et cetera. But again, it didn't go to the conference. It doesn't know this new information. Somebody has to go in and retrain the model to have the appropriate insight for now. Um, so it, it's hard to say that they're really doing anything on their own. It's a lot of kind of manipulation on one end or another to make sure all the right information is fed in. Again, it kind of just does what you tell it to do. And if you give it the right information to to be told the right thing, then it will be more likely to do the right thing. Not 100%, but more likely. Um, and if it has old information, it's going to give you the old recommendation, most likely. One of the other things I feel like we've both learned from this is when you're looking and figuring out, do we want to use this learning model? Do we want to try to apply this? Is really asking questions about what did their data set look like versus what knowledge they had, and when do we get that knowledge real-time in the course of care? Because I think that's the other pitfall that can happen with some of this, is when you're training and looking at things retrospectively, well, you have the full picture at that point. But if you're trying to catch something up front, some of those pieces that the model was trained on and identified might not be appropriately or readily available when that patient say, presents to an emergency department. We don't have all the pieces for that puzzle yet. And so how do we work through and discern and refine what do we have available to us at the right points in time 
to help give that insight to those clinical caregivers and help them guide that treatment and adjust that practice. It sounds like multidisciplinary teamwork is really useful in the development and adoption of these tools. Yeah, I think this is definitely one of the ongoing conversations. So we do try to have our team integrated in almost every place that we can that does AI because of this, Um, because there's a lot of mistakes that can be made with medications, especially if you're not a pharmacist. For instance, uh, there's just so many things that I've seen over time where like medication classes, fluoride and fluoroquinolones are spelled very much the same uh, for the first couple of letters. But if you pull in fluoride instead of fluoroquinolones, you have the wrong thing. Um, So we do try to get integrated in a lot of the AI projects because of that, because we don't want people to be spending huge amounts of time trying to develop a model based on just the wrong, wrong medications, wrong lab values, et cetera, that would be monitoring, you know, medication outcomes and things of the sort. So it really is a group effort when it comes down to it. And the same thing can be said with, for instance, orders that are not medications. We know less about them because we configure medications all day. So it would probably be better to ask the person who configures orders all day than it would be to ask me about you know, how a physical therapy order would go through the EHR and the timing of that and et cetera. I I don't know the answer. I would know the person to ask, but um, it really does come back to is the people who know where data lives in the EHR and um, know that the caveats and nuances of it are probably the best people to help you build a successful model. Because something like if I've had issues or I ran into issues, Uh, I know that. I remember when I messed up, (laughs) but you don't necessarily need to waste the five hours that it took me to figure out why something didn't work. I I can just tell you, you should do this because I tried a hundred other things and none of them worked. Um, And that's really where you get the efficiency as well, is that when you have the expert who knows, knows things about whatever it is you're doing, it can be a lot more efficient than trying to reinvent the wheel yourself or make the hundred mistakes before the hundred and first time where it actually worked. Um, so there's lots of, of benefits to being interdisciplinary from that perspective. Thank you so much for that. So I know we're getting close to the end and I typically ask guests a couple of big wonderings. First question is, We talk about trustworthiness or we hear about trustworthiness with AI. Forgetting machines for a moment, thinking just about people, how do you know you can really trust someone? I think uh, probably familiarity breeds trustworthiness, but the the same thing is true is that you cannot always trust people. You cannot always trust, really part of it is that in every interaction you're making, you're evaluating the trustworthiness of something. Uh, And the same should be true for AI. The people building this are not flawless. Uh, There are things that were not considered. So in in many ways, you should at least be partially skeptical that the information has the ability to not be quite right. Um, Just like you would with any interaction. If somebody, you know, doesn't seem trustworthy to you, you should be a little skeptical. AI should seem a little not trustworthy to you because again, it's really complicated. There's plenty of places where somebody could mess up. There's just no shortage of opportunity for that. But over time, I think that trust builds up, right? So you've seen it and it's basically always worked. 
and, and that feels good. And if they add something new, you add like this, this part of it, I don't really trust so much this week, but this other stuff that's been working since the beginning of time, well, I feel pretty good about that. And, and that's how I would see it as I don't, I don't think the day we turn it on, anybody should trust it because, you know, we don't necessarily know if it's trustworthy either. We know that it performed the way it performed in our testing, but we don't know, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And that's, there's a lot of things that we might not know. Building on that would be something we thought about doing and pursuing with the practice since we made kind of that inline display of how this information was being processed for that subset of medications is to work on maybe turning that on for everybody and socializing that aspect of the tool and make it familiar and relatable and there to ask questions about. And if we come to a point where we've, we've got time, we can keep putting into growing and adjusting and, and helping program that learning into it, for lack of better phrasing, uh, I think that would be something that would be helpful to make more of this. And like we said, we felt it was very important as we pursued the steps of this, that there was that transparent piece of information. Uh, I think when you're helping a pharmacist and replacing some of their cognitive time is you can't use one of these models or approaches that has a black box aspect to it. It can't just be data went in and here's what we're telling you. You have to keep it granular and visible so they can relate to and be comfortable with what it found. Thank you so much for that. All right, one last, maybe quicker question and more fun question. We think of AI as a tool. Machine learning is a, is a tool. The models are tools for us. It's part of a larger strategy, like you said. It's there to augment clinical decision-making. This could be professionally related or not. If you could have any kind of tool that doesn't currently exist to solve a problem in your life, what would it be? Oh, I know the answer to this one right away. <laughs> I wish that I could have something that takes the dishes out of my dishwasher and puts them away. Because <laughs> I want my dishwasher to always be empty <laughs> so that I can just put them in there and not deal with it. I would like something that could process and know how I've responded to past emails. I, I feel like that's in the realm where there should be enough of a data set of how I've interacted with topics, subjects, content in the email that where the AI is today, it could tailor to me and learn how I could reply to some things and flag anything that's more complex that I need to follow up on. Oh my gosh, talk about reducing the email deluge. That sounds lovely. Well, I'm so glad that you both were able to join me today. I've so appreciated this conversation. I've learned quite a bit from you all. Thanks for having us on. It was a great conversation. I agree. Thank you. <laughs>